0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Nancy Solomon, reporter and host of Dead End. I'm popping in here to share a really compelling story my colleagues in the WNYC newsroom have been working on for the better part of a year now. It's a five-part investigation called Imminent Danger, One Doctor and a Trail of Injured Women. The doctor in question, Thomas J. Byrne, has what New York state officials have described as a record of negligence and incompetence. Christopher Wirth, the editor of the series, gets us started.
2: He's an OBGYN who currently works at a clinic in the Bronx that's run by St. Barnabas. But until fairly recently, he was practicing at Harlem Hospital, where he was named as a defendant in two malpractice lawsuits. The fact that Dr. Byrne is practicing in New York at all is in itself remarkable because New York had at one time revoked his medical license. Um, this was after health department officials investigated a string of bad outcomes under his care. But that obviously you know, was not the end of his medical career. He was able to obtain medical licenses in other states just about a year after New York made it impossible for him to practice here. Uh, he went on to work in New Mexico and Oklahoma. And then in 2014, New York restored his medical license in the state.
1: Over the course of his roughly 40-year career, Byrne has had at least 23 malpractice claims filed against him. That's far more than the average OBGYN, according to studies by the American Medical Association and others, which put that number between one and three. The first episode in this series focused on one case in particular that raises questions about burn. It took place at Harlem Hospital back in twenty sixteen. Here's the reporter, Karen Shakurji.
3: I need to start this whole thing with telling you about a woman I've never met and what I've learned about her life before it took a tragic turn. This woman's name was Y Chi Lam, but she went by Amy. She lived in Harlem, she was from Hong Kong, and she was a journalist. She moved to New York specifically to study journalism at Columbia University. I have a bunch of videos that her husband shared with me Just a collection of everyday moments of her and her family. They're lovely, but also, ever since I first watched them, in many ways, they've haunted me. They're singing songs. Walking around the park on a nice sunny day. Doing bath time. There's just a lot of laughter and joy in the most simple and beautiful of ways. But this is not a story about those moments. It's a story about what happened to Amy after she gave birth to her second child and about the track record of one doctor that stretches way back to well before he treated her at a hospital in New York City. Back in the early 90s, New York State found that doctor, an OBGYN named Thomas Byrne, to be dangerous, negligent, and fraudulent. They even took away his medical license. Then, decades later, gave it back to him. They said he was rehabilitated, fit to practice. But I've obtained over 4,000 pages of public records, and what I've discovered is that since he first lost his license in New York, former patients and their family members across multiple states have continued to file lawsuits that allege he was negligent while providing medical care, which they claim caused injuries or death. And yet, he's still practicing today.
1: To understand why that is, we need to go back in time to examine some of the events that led New York State to strip Dr. Byrne of his license in the first place. Here's Karen with the episode. And one note this story deals with detailed accounts of medical injury, loss,
3: and grief. The details I learned about Dr. Byrne's past were troubling. New York state health officials had declared him to be an imminent danger in the 90s. I wanted to understand what happened to earn him that label. While I was digging through court records, I came across a list of names, patients that had settled lawsuits with Byrne back then. It was just a list of names and settlement amounts, no other details. But I tracked down one of those former patients, a woman named Donita Henry, to see if I could learn more she was pretty surprised to get a message from me.
4: Because I actually, to be perfectly honest with you, when you get a message out of the blue, I did look you up and I'm like, okay, she's legit. You know, I I don't know you, you don't know me. And obviously there's things that you never forget. But I'm not really sure I wanted to dredge up all these memories either.
3: What I learned is that Donita's case was central to Dr. Byrne losing his medical license more than 30 years ago. It's amazing when when I started talking about it, the stuff that you do remember. She actually testified about what happened to her and her daughter Megan as part of a series of hearings in a New York State investigation. It looked into whether Dr. Byrne was fit to practice medicine. There's an incredibly detailed public record of what happened with a number of patients. And at the time, the hearings were a big deal. There were 12 of them, 12 sessions held over the span of four months in Rochester, New York. A local paper there, the Democrat and Chronicle, followed the investigation pretty closely and ran headlines like Obstetrician faces charges of negligence and State panel urges license be revoked you know, considering what he did to, to my daughter and,
4: and other children. I just remember being told that Megan's case was pretty much a straw that broke the camel's back, that they were watching this guy. What did happen in your case? Uh, okay, so on May 3rd of
3: 1990, I went in for a regular um, checkup. You know, back, back in 1990, Danita was 25 years old, and she was living in the Finger Lakes area of upstate New York. She was nine months pregnant and seeing Dr. Byrne for care. Um, this was my first child, so I did not know what to expect. I'm going
4: to trust my doctor, obviously. And he had told me uh, my blood pressure was high, and he said, OK, um, if you don't go into labor, I need
3: to induce you. At 8 p.m. that same night, Danita was admitted to Newark-Wayne Community Hospital.
4: I do remember that I just wasn't going into labor and they had to break my water.
2: I know that's sometimes done to speed delivery, but are there any risks to doing that?
3: Yeah, well, if labor goes on for a long time after breaking the water, the mother and the baby can develop an infection, basically because bacteria can then get into the uterus. And how long
2: had Danita gone after Burn broke her water?
3: Well, 24 hours later, she still hadn't given birth. And by that point, her temperature shot up to 102.2. The baby's heart rate was rising, And Donita was still not fully dilated. The state's public record says Dr. Byrne told her to start pushing anyway, which an expert witness for the health department would later say was the wrong thing to do. Were you there in the room when all of this was unfolding? Yes. Michelle Durham was a labor and delivery nurse at the time. She was working that night taking care of Donita
5: and assisting Dr. Byrne. What was it what was it like in there? From what I would call, I I had an impending feeling of <laughs> I, I don't wanna sound dramatic, but doom. Like this is not going the way it should. Her temperature started to creep up, she developed fetal tachycardia and she wasn't showing the cervical change that she should have. And I, I you know, I, I think that when you do something in medicine long enough, you, you develop like a sixth sense. And there are certain cases and bad outcomes specifically, you just don't forget.
3: Can you describe Dr. Byrne? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in what your impressions of him were.
5: I would say compared to the many physicians that I had worked with, um, <laughs> I don't know how to say this, You know, he was kind of a cowboy. He would just be much more aggressive in the care of a patient. And I think it made a lot of people uncomfortable. Michelle also
3: testified as a witness in the investigation into Dr. Byrne. She refers to Donita as Patient E because the state records anonymize patients to protect their privacy.
5: So... Prior to the case in question, he already sort of had an established reputation. I mean, because patient E, whose case I was involved in, was not the first bad outcome. I mean, there had been many previous bad outcomes. Just after 10 p.m. that night that Danita was in the
3: hospital, records show her temperature continued to climb to 104.4. An OBGYN who I asked to review this record told me that kind of temperature for a patient in labor is like a five-alarm fire because it is a sign that an infection is most likely brewing and that the baby needs to be delivered as soon as possible. Dr. Byrne initially ordered an emergency C-section, but 15 minutes after that, he started using a vacuum extractor to deliver the baby
5: instead. He, um, he liked the vacuum extractor and he used it a lot. I remember that distinctly. You know, when you are appropriately using a vacuum extractor, it's, it's an assistance and the baby should be easily delivered and there shouldn't be trauma. What were you witnessing in that moment? I was witnessing way, way more traction and pull than should have ever been done.
2: Karen, just so I'm clear... What exactly is a vacuum extractor, and what's the risk in using it in the way that she's describing?
3: Yeah, a vacuum extractor essentially is a tool with a suction cup at the end that a doctor puts on the baby's head and then pulls while the mother pushes the baby out. If it's used improperly, though, that can hurt the baby and even cause brain
5: damage. I knew that. Vacuum extractor should never have been put on that infant's head.
3: That's just, that was like totally clear to you in that moment.
5: hundred percent. I just remember thinking, I can't believe he's pulling and that I needed to make sure I documented very proficiently and very accurately, even if it contradicted what he wrote. Because 32 years ago, you didn't question the physician, The physician made decisions, and as a nurse, you carried them out. The baby, Megan, was born
3: at 10.40 p.m. By that point, records show that Donita did have an infection. She was in severe septic shock, and that Dr. Byrne hadn't prescribed enough antibiotics to fight the infection. I do
4: remember I lost a lot of blood giving birth to her sorry, she was tiny. Um, in fact, when they weighed her after they pumped her full of fluid, she was probably just six pounds. Um, so I remember giving birth to her, not knowing what was going on. I, I, I At this time, I had
3: no clue. Um, Donita says that excited. in that moment, she turned to Dr. Byrne.
4: And I had I had said to him, and I remember this because I'm thinking, wow, okay, that's pretty cold. Um, I said to him, how is she doing? He said, to be perfectly honest with you, not very good. And I thought, whoa, okay. And I can remember somebody commenting on the, all the blood, my blood that was on the floor. She was born May 4th at night
3: and she died May 5th. Doctors later determined that the infection had also spread to Megan. She suffered cardiopulmonary arrest, birth asphyxia and profound sepsis. She was kept alive for just 23 hours.
4: It was hell, I mean, obviously. I didn't have my daughter I was told that had he done a C-section, and it was discussed, had he done a C-section like an hour or two before, I would still have my daughter, and she would be fine.
5: I remember saying to the nurses who were there, my peers, saying, do you all understand that this did not have to happen? This was preventable. Do you all understand that? I left that night, and I, I'm pretty sure that might have been my last shift I ever worked there.
3: Hmm. You just didn't want to go back?
5: Nope.
2: So do we have any sense of how Dr. Byrne reacted to what happened to Danita and her baby?
3: I did reach out to Dr. Byrne for comment on Donita's story specifically, as well as other cases, and he hasn't responded but I know from records that he continued to deliver babies at this particular hospital after Megan's death. And Donita told me that she spoke with Dr. Byrne sometime after this all happened.
4: I don't know if he contacted me or if I contacted him. I remember meeting with him after office hours and him going through my records with me, trying to explain what happened. And I remember saying something about, you know, I had told him before, I can't keep the prenatal vitamins down. I keep throwing them up. And he basically said, well, that didn't help the situation. You know, kind of like blaming me. I felt at that time, you're telling me because I kept throwing up my my prenatal vitamins, my daughter died.
3: One of the things that sticks out so much to me about Danita's experience is the aftermath of her daughter's death Mm -hmm. because she was trying to make sense of what happened to her and her daughter. And at least initially, she didn't yet think that Dr. Byrne was necessarily to blame for what happened.
4: My my mother had kept telling me, Donita, there's something going on, there's something doesn't feel right. And I kept saying, no, it wasn't his fault, it wasn't his fault. And she's like, I'm telling you, you need to
3: dig further. Donita's mother had a friend who worked at that local paper, the Democrat and Chronicle in Rochester, the one that was covering the state's investigation. And they managed to get transcripts of people who testified.
4: This is while the whole hearing or trial or whatever it was, was going on in Rochester. She said to my mom, "You and Danita need to come up and read these transcripts."
3: And that's when I found out it was him. Danita told me that reading those transcripts is what motivated her to testify in the state's investigation herself, because it confirmed for her that Dr. Byrne was at fault.
4: I was reeling from the realization that my doctors, whom I trusted with mine and my child's life, was the cause of this whole thing.
3: The state found other cases besides Donita's, a total of 11 patients, which included five pairs of mothers and babies and one woman who got gynecological surgery. The state ultimately concluded all of them had been harmed by burn in a span of two years, In all, three babies died, including Megan. Two other babies suffered severe brain damage. The state charged Dr. Byrne with using a vacuum extractor improperly in three of those cases, although not in Donita's. But the state did find that Dr. Byrne deviated from acceptable medical care 15 times while caring for her, which a medical expert for the state testified caused or contributed to her daughter's death.
2: And did Byrne testify in these hearings?
3: He did. I wasn't able to get access to his testimony through the health department, so I can't tell you what he said. Okay. But the state did reference it in a summary of the hearings. I'll just read you this part. It says, quote, Respondent's testimony was purely self-serving and replete with misrepresentations and false statements. And they also say, quote, Respondent repeatedly demonstrated an unmitigated lack of the basic knowledge and understanding necessary to practice medicine, as well as a complete disregard for the well-being of his patients. Respondent is devoid of any semblance of professional integrity and honesty.
2: So when the state stripped Byrne, Of his medical license at that time, was there much chance of him ever getting it back?
3: So New York's Board of Regents voted to revoke his medical license, and that decision went into effect on November 20th, 1991. That made it impossible for him to practice anywhere in the state. Uh But... To answer your question, that day, a health department spokesperson was quoted in the and Chronicle saying it would be very difficult for Byrne to get his license back. Not impossible, but very difficult. But in 2014, that's exactly what he did. He got his license back in New York.
4: So this is this is news to you, it sounds like, that you're, you're surprised oh, yeah. to hear that.
3: Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very
4: disappointed. <laughs> I cannot believe that they did this. Because it wasn't like Megan was the only, only child that he did anything to. And I almost died. You know, he doesn't need to be
3: practicing. Considering what officials concluded after their investigation— I wanted to know why New York had given him his medical license back so many years later. And to figure that out, I felt like I needed to know what happened in the time between what happened to Danita and Amy's death at Harlem Hospital 26 years later. One of the first things I found is that about a year after New York revoked Byrne's license, he managed to get another license elsewhere in another state.
5: How could somebody who had their license revoked under the the saddest of circumstances be able to continue? I mean, I have to assume that there has to be a paper trail of other poor outcomes.
2: Coming up, we meet the person Dr. Byrne turned to after he lost his medical license. Practicing physicians
0: are expected to be infallible and make zero mistakes 100 percent of the time it's one of the few professions where that is absolutely true that's next hi i'm alexis ohanian you may know me as one of the co-founders of reddit but more recently a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters in my podcast business dad I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit you'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads from rain wilson and guy Raz to todd carmichael and shane battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career business dad is available now so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever
2: you get your podcasts So, Karen, uh, just to recap some of the things that we've heard, uh, Byrne mm-hmm. loses his license in 1991. Michelle and Denita testify against him in New York state's hearings. Right. Where did he end up after that?
3: Yeah. So about a year after he loses his New York license, he gets one in New Mexico. Hmm. I did manage to get a whole bunch of documents from the New Mexico Medical Board through a public records request. Mm-hmm. And between those records and others from other state medical boards, over 600 pages, I was able to piece together what happened. The first thing I want to tell you about is what Dr. Byrne did in that year between New York and New Mexico, because he went through a pretty unique program that seems to have played a really big role in his being able to continue practicing. I tracked down the guy who created it, an educational psychologist named William Grant.
0: I work on the whole issue of how people learn, why they learn, why they don't learn, how to make their learning experience better.
3: The program was called the Physician Prescribed Educational Program. It was based at SUNY Upstate Medical University, that's State University of New York in Syracuse. Mm -hmm. And it was for doctors who, for all sorts of reasons, were in some kind of trouble. Mainly doctors dealing with substance abuse, but other issues too. Do you think it's fair to think of the program as kind of like like a last chance or like last attempt for doctors?
0: For some of them, it was. If you're a physician and lose your license, nobody wants you. You can't go in the hospital and work as a phlebotomist. You can't go do other things that are medically related because the lawyers will say, we don't want the liability of dealing with someone who was a physician and lost their license.
3: You are meeting them not in the best moment of their career.
0: Yeah, no kidding.
3: Doctors would go through a series of evaluations, some retraining if need be, and then William would write up a final report and make a recommendation about whether he thought the physician was fit to continue practicing.
0: We had to explain, we ain't saving you, and whatever we find is what we're gonna report. We're not here to gloss over anything. It is what it is, and that's what gets reported.
3: The program wasn't huge. William told me that roughly 300 physicians went through it over the 10 or so years it existed. It no longer is running.
0: One of the issues with physicians, especially in the American public, is that practicing physicians are expected to be infallible and make zero mistakes 100% of the time. It's one of the few professions where that is absolutely true. And public will not countenance any errors from physicians. And it doesn't matter what the error is and whose fault it is.
3: Were there physicians that you struggled with? Or what? for you, was it always kind of very clear because you had to data-focused approach?
0: No, there's always physicians you struggle with. And the more you do it, the harder it gets because the implications of your decisions become clearer, the the magnitude of the implications of your decisions. And so even the ones that that I would recommend go back and practice medicine, those are no easy decisions. Those are really no easy decisions.
3: Why was it not easy for for physicians who you were recommending that they return to practice?
0: Because you don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's like anything else. Uh, yeah, we think we got them. We think we've got it fixed. We think we've got it sorted out. And they are, seem to be doing very well. And they've got a lot of support system and so on. But you just don't know. You just don't have a clue.
2: And were you able to find out where Dr. Byrne fell in all of this?
3: So William didn't want to talk about any particular doctors with me who went through his program to protect their privacy. That was one of the conditions of our interview. Okay. But I did manage to get some records from the Oklahoma State Medical Board, another state Byrne would go on to practice in. Those records show that the program was pretty involved, Byrne completed a number of exercises and evaluations, including writing an extensive 40-page paper on the proper use of vacuum extractors.
2: And we should just say that's improper use of a vacuum extractor. That's one of the reasons Byrne was stripped of his license in the first place.
3: Yeah, that's right. And and in the end, William recommended that Dr. Byrne should go back to practice as he did before, meaning, you know, practice with a medical license that doesn't have any restrictions on it. Mm. William um, writes to the Department of Health in New York, and he also eventually writes to the boards in other states where Byrne goes on to practice. I have one of the letters. And his take on what happened in New York is basically that yes, Dr. Byrne had some issues, but that he was also really overworked and that he just had taken on too many patients and couldn't keep up.
2: So, this is the thing that helps Byrne to keep practicing?
3: Yeah, as far as I can tell, New Mexico gives him a license not too long after. And he starts practicing in a rural area about an hour or so from the border, the Mexican border. He bounces around to a few other places in the state. And then in 1997, so six years after he lost his license in New York, he applies for a medical license in Oklahoma. I actually got a written statement that Byrne submitted as part of that application, And besides depositions, this is actually one of the few instances where I've been able to hear him in his own words since he hasn't responded to any of my requests for an interview. It says, quote, I began to work in a small town called Alamogordo, New Mexico. I was refused hospital privileges, but practiced in an office called Thunderbird OBGYN. I worked there for a year and decided to do a mini-residency at the University of New Mexico in order to be able to restart hospital practice.
2: And is that a big deal, uh, being refused privileges, uh, redoing a residency in the way that he's describing here?
3: Well, I think what it shows is that Byrne was really trying to continue practicing, but that it wasn't necessarily easy. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say, quote... I have made mistakes in my life and in my practice of medicine. I have strived both with self-honesty and hard work to correct the mistakes I have made and to better educate myself so that I can make fewer errors in the practice of medicine. New Mexico took a chance in granting me a licensed practice in 1992. I took that chance and rewarded the state by bringing good care to the patients I cared for both at the university and in rural areas of the state I have visited and practiced in. Please call any or all of the places where I have worked. They will uniformly give me good recommendations, both as a person and as a physician. Please allow me the same chance to practice in Oklahoma. You will not be disappointed if you do.
1: That's Imminent Danger, One Doctor and a Trail of Injured Women, produced with support from the Pulitzer Center. To hear the whole five-part series, head to WNYC's local news podcast feed, NYC Now, wherever you get podcasts. Or you can visit Gothamist.com and click on Podcast at the top of the homepage. And thanks for listening.